Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. First Tuesday of December, so I've decided to invite a remarkable guest with an incredible story. But before that, as always, I want to thank you for being here and joining us every week. Thank you for those who have subscribed to the podcast. And if you haven't, please do. You are helping our community not only to grow, but also reach others that might need some inspiration or life lessons to improve their lives. Of course, we are available on all the podcast platforms, even on YouTube. If you want more on Immigrants Live content, you can follow us on all the social media. Our handle is at an immigrants life. And if you want to reach out or if you'd like to come on the podcast or if you know someone that wants to come on the podcast, send us a message there or you can send us an email at an immigrants life at yahoo.com. And that's for the biz. Now let's talk about the episode. As I've mentioned on top, our guest this week is a remarkable human being. Her incredible spirit pushed herself to travel 7,000 miles away to reach freedom from her abusive ex-husband and her Islamic extremist government. This is such a good episode, so let me get to the point. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is a celebrity wardrobe stylist and an author. She'll change your life with her life lessons while elevating your fashion sense. Everyone, please welcome Naz Meknat. Hello. What's going, Naz? Um, not much. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And thank you for coming, obviously. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Before we get into the details and things, why don't you tell the Immigrant Nation where they can reach you or if you want to promote anything? Um, I am most active on Instagram. Um, I'm a little old for TikTok and everybody asks me about TikTok. And I'm like, I just can't. <laughs> I just can't get around TikTok. But I'm most active on uh, Instagram. My username is Naz, N-A-Z underscore Meknat, M-E-K-N-A-T. Um, that's where I usually post about everything, my, um, work, my, uh, activism, anything that's going on, I post on Instagram. And if people want to see my work as far as, you know, my fashion work, my portfolio is on my website, which is just nazmeknat.com. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have a book. I wrote a book a year ago. It's called 7,000 Miles to Freedom. And it's a story about my journey. Uh, growing up in Iran and uh, how it was growing up in a country that is ruled by clerics and um, very strict Islamic rules and how I had to escape uh, overnight hmm. and how I got to United States where my family lived. Um, so it covers pretty much everything from my childhood to the minute that I got to United States and found safety. Um, it can be found on Amazon. It's the easiest way to get a copy. Um, again, the title is 7,000 Miles to Freedom. 
Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, actually, I've just picked it up reading again. I haven't read for a while, but now I'm like, all right, get back to reading. Yeah, it's a small book too. It's not a very hefty book where you need like months and months to finish it. <laughs> Uh, I just kind of like wanted to get to the point and speak about what was important, what my story was. And mm. so it turned out to be um, a small book. However, the, the content is heavy. So um, I always tell people, if you are a fast reader, I think you can actually finish it in two days. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not the thickness or the size of the book. It's what's inside the book, right? Yeah, exactly. The story is just, as I said, I just didn't want to beat around the bush. So I got to the point and I spoke about everything that I wanted to, you know, talk about. And, uh, and I, the story is very heavy. It's not um, a very light romance story. It's a heavy, (laughs) serious story. And it's it's the story of my life. That's something that I've gone through. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I felt like, I can't go on and on and on and on because, you know, when you're reading something so heavy and sad, Mm. you don't want to really put that much pressure on people to keep reading. So I'm like, let me get to the point. Let me tell the story. And, you know, it turned out to be a good sized book, but um, I know a lot of people are not readers. Um, Myself, one of them, I like to listen to audiobooks. Mm. And you're working on an audiobook, but for now it's just a physical copy. But I tell people, I'm like, don't be scared. It's a small book. So <laughs> that's awesome. Audiobooks. Are you going to be the one who's going to be reciting or are you going to be hiring someone to voice over? It's actually uh, something that my publisher is doing. So I think they do it on their end. They just hire someone, a company to do it, and they have their own people. So. Mm. it's not going to be me. But are you scared that maybe since the person is just an actor, maybe that person cannot relay how you were feeling the moment you were, you know, going through those experiences? Um, I feel like when they have a person that is right to... Um, you know, do the job. I probably would have a say. I, we probably would have, you know, how actors have auditioned. We probably will have listened to her reading part of the book because I feel like it should be a female voice. And then we'll decide from there if, you know, this person is the right person or not. Mm-hmm. Why don't you want to do it? Um, it's not that I don't want to do it. I wasn't given that option by my publisher just yet. Um, I don't know how their process is. Um, and I haven't brought it up, to be honest. I have a slight accent because I moved to United States like when I was 23 years old. So I haven't lost my accent. I still have a little bit. And I feel like maybe they want somebody without an accent. So everybody clearly can understand. I don't know. I don't know what the thinking behind it is. But um, I did an offer, to be honest. And um, from what I've heard, that's how they do it. They just outsource another company and, you know, uh, the employees that that company has that they hire specifically for hmm. narrating the book. Are you ashamed of your accent or are you cool with it now? No. You know, actually, at the beginning when I moved here, I was a little ashamed of it. And hmm. I tried very, very hard to lose my accent. <laughs> and I lived with my sister when I moved here. My sister is married to an American guy. So I was just like, 
listening very closely to how he pronounced everything because mm. um, I just got tired of everybody keep asking me, oh, you have an accent, where are you from? Um, and there was a negative uh, weight kind of uh, connected to when you said I'm, I'm Iranian. Mm. Um, so it was just, you know, I, I tried to watch a lot of soap operas, a lot of news, everything that I could to lose my accent as fast as I could. Um, however, there's a thing, I guess, if you uh, move to a different country before the age of 13, you lose your accent. If you move after the age of 13, you will never lose your accent unless you like work really hard at it, and, mm. you know, um, hire a speech coach. And, you know, at the beginning, when I moved here, the first maybe five years, I thought I wanted to be an actor. So I started taking acting classes and mm. I was taking a commercial acting and I was taking like uh, acting acting. And uh, one of the teachers told me, oh, I suggest that you lose your accent because you're not going to get any work having this accent. And the other teacher was telling me, don't ever lose your accent. That's what makes you unique. So I was just so confused. So I kind of like let it be and let it go. I'm like, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, I do speak two languages, which is, you know, more than a lot of other people. So I should be proud. And I wasn't born here. I wasn't raised here. So it is what it is. So now I'm at peace with it. Yeah. It's your spice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a conversation starter. People ask you, oh, where are you from? So I can, you know talk to you know people about where i'm from and uh it just like turns into a full-on conversation and you know it asked me uh that if i was ashamed of the accent you know it was like there there was some sort of shame and guilt coming with being from iran you know everybody just kind of like oh terrorist that's the first thing that came <laughs> to their mind you know just because i'm from middle east and it, it was just it's and it's not just me it's collectively all iranians felt like that and we never said we are from iran anybody asked us where you're from we would say oh we're persian mm -hmm. um because we didn't want to be uh you know associated with the middle east and the arabic countries where they like you know there's terrorist groups and you know it was just like some sort of weight that was attached to the name Iranian. So mm. everybody that you ask, where are you from? We all said Persian. Mm. Um, till recently, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know there's an uprising and a revolution going on in Iran right now. So we have been so united and we have come together to support our Iranian, uh, you know, friends, family and people in Iran who are fighting risking their lives. So I have noticed everybody's gone back to say I am Iranian and everybody's very proud to say I'm from Iran. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard within the past three months since this uprising has started, I haven't heard one person say, oh, I'm Persian. Now everybody proudly says I'm Iranian. Yeah, that's which is cool. But maybe some people are just saying it because it's the cool thing to do now. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity. So <laughs> you are correct. You are correct. But um, we were just like as, as Iranians trying so hard mm -hmm. to make people in the West understand 
that the Islamic Republic is not Iran. People are so different from the government that's ruling that country. It's like a theocracy and it's, you know, it's been 44 years of oppression and um, extreme Islamic laws, um, you know, forced on people and dictatorship. That is what it is. It's dictatorship. Mm. Let's call it what it is. Mm. So it's been just, we've been trying so hard for so many years to try make Westerners understand we are not our government. That is so different. And we are fighting for our rights as well. We are fighting to be, um, you know, have some human rights. Um, so this time around, I feel like everybody's trying harder to understand where we're coming from. And they're getting it slowly. Mm. They're getting mm. it. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I have a former guest. Uh, she's a documentarian and a reporter for Al Jazeera. Um, oh, yeah, uh, Gallery Darabi, and she's she's originally from Iran. She's been posting a lot about Iranians and you know the badasses that like brave man, <laughs> the things that they're doing is like yo, I don't think I can. Yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah, it's been um, as I said, it started in the middle of September when they arrested. We have a branch of policing called Morality Police, mm -hmm. which they're kind of like patrol the streets to see, you know, if you're wearing your hijab correctly, if you are um, walking down the street with a, you know, male figure, if you're if you're a woman, um, you have to be related to that man. So if it's not your father, your brother, your um, husband, you will get arrested. So morality police, that's their job to just harass people, um, look for anything that they can to arrest you. So a young woman, 22 year old Masa Gina Amini, she was arrested because a little bit of her hair was showing under her hijab and they beat her so badly that mm -hmm. she died in a police custody. And unfortunately that, um, that was very unjust and that started a revolution. That's what we are seeing right now. And since then, um, I want to say 95% of Iranians have not posted anything on social media, but what's happening in Iran. And the reason is the mainstream media is not covering it. You cannot turn on to CNN and get a full coverage. You might see a, you know, a 20 second clip of what's happening on the streets, but there is no in-depth reporting. First, because they don't allow reporters. You know, the regime is not allowing reporters to actually report. They want to uh, kill this uh, movement and they don't want the world to understand what's going on. Hmm. And the second, the only way that we are getting our news is through social media. Um, these brave kids, these Generation Z that I'm just in awe of, they are so brave. And they are the generation of social media and internet. When I was growing up in Iran, we didn't have any of this. So mm. we were very sheltered. We didn't have access to, you know, the outside world. So this generation does. They see how other, you know, people uh, in different parts of the world live. And they see how deprived they are from their basic human rights. So they've had enough. But you, that's the reason you see a lot of Iranians, all they post is the news from Iran and because they're asking us, please be our voice, please be our voice. Um, they shut down their inner, the regime shuts down their internet because they don't want these clips to get out. And mm. they go around that they're, they're young kids, so they're very smart. They find a VPN and they find a way 
to send these clips to us who are outside of Iran to post it. And they have, they don't have weapons. You know, it's not like United States or any, you know, other country that you can just walk into a gun store and buy a gun. That doesn't exist. So they're kind of um, fighting with their bare hands. And you see kids as young as eight and nine years old are getting killed on the streets every single day. Every mm-hmm. single day we get a news of another kid that died. Um that was eight years old. That was nine years old. So um, I know people are a little tired of seeing and hearing it on social media. And I'm sorry, but we have an obligation because if we don't post these, the world is not not, not going to know the genocide that's happening inside of Iran right now. Definitely. And don't say sorry. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah, it's a little heavy. And I know like, you know, people turn to social media to just like, have a little bit of a fun and see something funny and but at the same time social media actually has done a lot for um you know educating people and making people understand where you live is not the whole world there is so much out there that you know you need to open your eyes and and know what's going on in the other parts of the world so it's heavy. You know, you see, you know, the clips that we are seeing and people are posting are from kids' bodies laying on the street, you know, all bloody. And mm. these are not easy things to watch. And every day when you keep seeing these things and hearing this news, it, it you know, you can't help but get depressed. It brings you down the unjust that's being done to the youth. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I say I'm sorry, because it's I know it's very heavy, but that's the reality of, you know, people in Iran. And there is a saying these days, they say your sensitive content is the reality of people living in Iran. So, you know, how there's a warning on social media says sensitive. So if you don't want to watch it, don't. Uh, but that's literally the reality of people living in Iran right now. Definitely. Speaking of brutality and violence, you grew up running for shelter because of bomb attacks and rocket attacks. How yes. was that life go? Like, are you one minute you're playing, one minute you're running to a shelter? And what kind of shelter are you running to? Like, just a house? So, you know, for us, so yeah, we went through eight years of war with Iraq, right after the 1979 revolution that happened in Iran, where they uh overthrown the uh king of Iran uh because it was a monarchy um and the religious clerics and leaders took over um a year later Iraq attacked the soil in Iran and um the country was still very unstable so it was kind of like let's take advantage and somehow we got attacked by the neighboring country and the war went on for eight years. Um, during this time, so when the you know enemy's uh, planes, when the radar picks up that you know it's in the airspace of Iran, they would there, there, there was a very loud siren uh, throughout the whole city. So you would hear the siren, and that meant run for shelter. 
our shelter was, so we lived in a four-story apartment building. And depending where you live, your shelter was different. For us, it was a high rise across the street that was built a lot stronger than our building. And they had a basement. So it was like uh, built from like steel and concrete. Um, So everybody from the neighborhood would run to the um, basement or underground of that high rise. That was Mm -hmm. our our shelter, which was like a little more safe than, you know, a four story building that wasn't built as um, strong. Mm -hmm. So that was our shelter. Different, you know, maybe if you lived somewhere in a more of a poor neighborhood where you didn't have those high rises in your neighborhood, there was nowhere to run. Hmm. Um, So, you know, for some people, it was just like because it would come at any time. It would be two in the morning, four in the morning, three in the afternoon. You wouldn't know when. Yeah. So you could be asleep at like two in the morning and all of a sudden you're waking up with these sirens and you had to run. But, you know, shelter for some people who didn't have anywhere to run to might have been just going under your blanket and, Hmm. you know, hoping that it wouldn't hit the rockets or the bombs don't hit your neighborhood. How old were you then? So I was four years old when the revolution happened and five when the uh, war started, five or six. So while you're running, you're around like five or six Yes. So when the war happened, yes. Mm -hmm. And it lasted eight years. And I left Iran when I was 23 years old. 23 years old. Okay. From that point to before you leave, how was your life? Like, do you go to school? What was normal life? You know, for the lack of a better word. Yeah. Normal life for us was very different than normal life for like a kid that lives in I don't know, London, for example, or anywhere else, even in like Malaysia or, you know, anywhere else in the world, just because um, because it's a dictatorship. Every move you make is monitored. So you are told how to dress. You are told what to study. You are told how to speak, uh, what not to say, uh, or there would be consequences. So... Normal life for us was going to school, even as like a, you know, five, six year old kid, we had to be covered from head to toe. We had uniforms that were um, this hijab that covered your whole hair. And then this long kind of like overcoat that covered every inch of your skin, except your hands. And then you had to wear pants under that. So you had to be... As a woman, you had to be covered from your head to your toe, and you could not wear anything else that you chose. So, you know, it's just like, I don't know how to explain because it's just unless you've experienced that, it's kind of like out of a sci-fi movie. Hmm. Um, You know, you are forced to, um, the first thing you do in the morning when you get to school, you are forced to line up in the courtyard and uh, say slogans that is uh, praising the supreme leader. Hmm. Um, and if you don't, you'll be punished. You are forced to practice Islam. You have no choice to practice anything else publicly. So if they find out you are of a different uh, religion, 
uh, that would be problematic. So they would force you to study Quran, even if you weren't practicing Islam, even if you were a Christian or, you know, were uh, practicing Judaism or Baha'i or any other, you know, faith. Um, so you're forced to study Arabic, you're forced to study Quran, you're forced to be dressed a certain way, you're forced to um, live your life the way the government tells you to. Mm -hmm. you um, and it, sorry for cutting you off, but you mentioned that obviously there was no internet back then. Yes. How did you know that this is not right? This is this is not life. Like there are better things. Was that thought inhabiting you, or it was just not even possible? Well, a couple of things. First is that um, our parents and grandparents lived a free life before us, before the revolution. It was a free country. It was like mm -hmm. any other place. It was like here. You know, it was like you know, you had freedom. People were people they had rights hmm. so you would hear from your parents or grandparents or older siblings how life was before the revolution so you knew this is something that's being forced on you and this is not normal hmm. and the second is yes we didn't have internet so we are talking about you know 80s and 90s um i left in 1997 and the internet was very new in iran <laughs> <laughs> like it was just you know making its way to iran but um, so we had anything Western is illegal. So you cannot like you can't go to a movie theater and watch, you know, a movie that just came out here in Hollywood. It's just forbidden. Um, so how we would actually like see movies or even, um, you know, award ceremonies like the Oscars or the Golden Globes. Uh, so there were people who would show up to your house once a week with a briefcase. <laughs> and yeah, so it was black market. And they would have the VHS tapes of the movies that it was like the latest movies for us. But obviously by the time they would tape it and send it to Iran and smuggle it inside of the country and get it, you know, to us, it would be like four or five months later. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a year. Maybe a year. But that was new for us. That's how we would see, you know, like, oh, my gosh, this is how people live outside, you know, mm. in you know, other parts of the world. This is how it is. So you would see the movies, you would see like Cannes Film Festival or the Oscars or um, if we if anybody had relatives, you know, outside of Iran, um, obviously they would get like, you know, some pictures. And that's how we saw how other people lived. My oldest sister left Iran when I was five years old. Hmm. So she would send, you know, pictures or um, they would smuggle in again VHS tapes that they filmed on their camcords, you know, family videos for us to see. And it was just kind of surreal for us to be like, oh, my God, people actually live like human beings outside <laughs> of this country. They are free. They they. They wear, you know, clothing that they like to wear. They can have their hair out. They can have makeup on. They can have nail polish. Oh, my mm -hmm. God. That was such a big deal because, mm -hmm. you know, the Islamic Republic would not let us do anything like that. They're dancing. They're singing. These are all illegal in Iran. Mm -hmm. You can dance. You can sing. You can't. So basically, especially if you're a woman, 
uh, they want you to not to exist. You are not to speak. <laughs> yeah, you're not to be heard. You're not to be seen. With the way they treat you, you are a second-class citizen. Mm. So, yeah, that's how we kind of like got a little bit of information of how the rest of the world is. Mm-hmm. But that's why this new generation is so fearless. And you see from nine-year-old kid to, you know, a 25-year-old, you know, um, girl or a guy just being so fearless taking, you know, the girls taking their hijabs off and going on the street and getting killed every day because they have access to what we didn't. Um, their, their courage and their bravery comes from seeing how other people live because they have access to social media and internet and they're fed up. And this has been something that this generation didn't bring on themselves. This is their, you know, parents and grandparents' generation that, you know, brought this government on them. Yeah, they're paying for it. They're paying for it, then they're tired of it. They're mm-hmm. done. How did yeah. your sister get out? My oldest sister actually got married to someone who lived here already. So she got married to um, a guy that was living in the United States. So that's how she got out. And I have another sister and a brother. Uh, we had to smuggle my brother out of Iran because if uh, you are a male figure, by the time you hit 18, you have to serve in military. Hmm. My brother is the only son in the family, and my mother just did not want to send him to war. Um, so we had to illegally, you know, kind of like send him across the border to flee. Hmm. Um, and then my sister just found her own way out of Iran. Um, she went to Spain and to like different countries and, you know, finally made it to United States. Mm-hmm. And I had to escape overnight. Um, so I was the only one that stayed back home. My parents were going back and forth because mm-hmm. my siblings were here. And due to you know events and the circumstances that I got myself into and the government enforcement, um, I was forced to leave the country overnight. So I packed a small bag and I left to Turkey. I lived in Istanbul for six months. And from there, mm-hmm. um, I made my way here somehow. It's don't want to uh, give up a lot because it's all in the book. Mm-hmm. But... Having an Iranian passport, you, they no country really wants you. So uh, I was stuck in Istanbul for six months. I couldn't go back home because I would be arrested and jailed. And um, I couldn't get here to United States to be with my family because they wouldn't give me a visa. So I lived there for six months and then finally um, got to United States after all that time. Wow. And yes. a lot of things that happen in between. You know, a lot of things happen in Turkey that um, no 23-year-old should go through, but it's life. Uh, are those things, are they on the book? Everything is on the book, yeah. Okay. Once I decided I'm going to write, um, I promised myself I'm not going to hold anything back, and I'm mm. going to uh, talk about everything, every single thing that has happened. Mm. How did your family... Uh, absorb that idea that like you're writing a story about you and obviously your family 
Yeah, because, you know, it's about them too. They're, they're also, you know, in the book, I talk about them. Um, my dad passed um, about 10, 11 years ago. So um, thank you. So he wasn't around for me to ask how he feels about this. And he was a very a private, strict person. <laughs> um, but I spoke to my mother and I spoke to my sisters and I asked them if there is anything that you guys are not comfortable for me to put in the book. These are the things I'm talking about. Uh, I can't speak about me and my life without speaking about my family and their role mm-hmm. in my life and how I got here. So everybody gave me a thumbs up. They said, do your thing. Um, everybody was okay with what I was going to put out there and talk about in the book. I got their blessing first. And, um, there were a lot of details about me and about the events and about the things that happened to me that I haven't spoken about even to my own family. So they were a little surprised reading the book, not knowing some of these details. And I know he broke their heart, but um, I'm like, you know what? Let your heart break just once. I didn't want to just bring this up and tell you what happened. And then having you guys having to keep thinking about it and keep going back to it. So now it is in the book and now, you know, but it's like so long ago that you can now it's okay because, because you can see I'm okay and Mm. I'm safe. And, um, for me to have told you at the time it, it had, it could have just made things a lot worse. You know, we had to focus on getting me out somehow. And for me to tell them minute by minute what was happening to me wasn't, I didn't think it was necessary at the time. Hmm. So they found out when the book came out. What a surprise, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, again, this was, th- these were details about what happened to me uh, and how like I was surviving day by day being by myself hmm. in a country that I had no idea. You know, I hadn't, I didn't know anyone. I didn't speak the language hmm. and it wasn't very safe for me to be by myself. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have to make them sign a paper saying like, Hey, you're not going to file a lawsuit or anything? For no, me? that's my family. No, <laughs> you never know. No, I trust my family. We're very close. Mm-hmm. We've been through a lot. We're very, we're a very close family. Uh, I didn't have to do any of that. No, they like, I'm the youngest and they always uh, try to protect me in any way. So I know they won't ever harm me. Mm -hmm. The ones that are like, you know, the the brother, I have two brother-in-laws and one of them is very involved in my story and he's American. And I had to um, ask him if he was okay that I'm putting all this in a book. And he was totally fine and cool with it because Mm. he thinks the story is just so cool. You know, being born and raised in, you know, uh, born in Los Angeles, raised in New York, you know, I'm like, I just, we are coming from such different worlds that I wanted to make sure he's okay because he was very involved in getting me here. Mm. And he actually risked his life to get me here. So he was mostly my concern and he was totally fine with it. But again, we are talking about people who, you know, put their lives at risk to 
rescue me and save my life. So I knew it was not necessary for me to like have them sign anything. I knew mm. that they would do anything to actually protect me, you know, mm. still to this day. So, yeah, no. <laughs> Definitely. So when did, when those experiences happened and be between that and then you decided to write the memoir, what compelled you to finally write the memoir? Um, so it was around the time that the Me Too movement happened. And it was very big here in Los Angeles where I live. And I'm in entertainment industry. And I was in awe of a lot of these women actually coming out and telling the truth and talking about their stories and what they went through. Because there was always a risk of them losing, you know, the projects they were working on, you know, a, a film that they were supposed to be in or, you know, um, in any shape or form, it was a risk to come out and um, speak about someone so powerful uh, or such a powerful industry. I was very, very in, uh, interested in what made these women to not be scared and come out and tell the whole world what happened to them. Hmm. Um, so I was kind of contemplating and then a friend of mine asked me why it is so important to me. And I told the friend a little bit about my story and what I've been through and how I've never spoke about it and how I never told anyone. And even though it's not the exact same thing, but it kind of is. Um, and I just kept getting encouragement from people who found out a little bit about my story to write about it. And I'm a little bit like my father. I'm a little, I'm more private than like just sharing everything, um, every detail about my life. So I had to think about it. I didn't want to put everything out there because these are the most intimate, um, personal and scary moments of my, my life that, mm. I really didn't talk about to a lot of people. So the thought of putting it all down in a book for people to be able to purchase and read every single detail was very scary. A friend of mine once said, while I was thinking about it, this is so much bigger than you. This is not even about you. Hmm. Um, just think about if somebody, uh, a young girl, that is in the same situation you were, 25 years ago if you read a story like this if you heard about a story like this and you saw someone that was in the same situation as you made it out made it through and is living a great life wouldn't that make you feel like you're responsible to talk about your experiences so you give hope to someone else that there is a way out that you can survive and not just that, you can thrive. You can have a great life after that. And that made me feel obligated. I'm like, when you put it that way, you're absolutely right. This is way bigger than me and my persona and my, um, you know, wanting to keep this uh, facade of, oh, I'm a celebrity stylist. I'm living a great life in Los Angeles. It was important. It became very important for people to know this is not, you know, everybody's life. We go hmm. through a lot of stuff to get here. 
mm-hmm. you know, I've gone through because honestly, people look at your social media. I have two young nieces and I see how impressionable they are. They look at the social media and they think, oh my gosh, these influencers, these people have such a great life and they don't know what you've gone through to get here and what actually goes on behind the scene that your struggles. Mm-hmm. So I felt compelled to actually speak about it and and you know this was supposed to be a movie actually we had two screenplays mm-hmm. we by two different um, screenwriters but I decided not to do it because when you make a story to a film um, a true story we know they change a lot of things so it's a little more interesting on the screen. And the story was going to change so much that it wasn't to be um, authentic. So I put a pause on it and I said, you know what, let me write the book. Let me tell the truth and exactly how everything happened. And after that, if they want to make a movie about it, at least there's a reference um, that people can go and and read the book and know the actual events. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wrote the book, because I felt like, you know, my friend was right. This is way bigger than me. Um, and I needed to speak up and I needed to, even if it gave hope and it helped even one person, I feel like that would be my purpose. Mm-hmm. So I put everything aside that, oh, what are people going to think? And just did it. That's it took sad. three years, but I did it. <laughs> You must yeah. be proud. I am proud, you know. I am proud because I started getting messages, actually, um, after the book came out, which was August of last year. I started mm-hmm. getting messages from victims and survivors and, you know, everybody in between. Um, and it warmed my heart that people actually um, related to the story And a lot of people actually understood that this life that you see from far away, um, you don't have to be in Afghanistan. You know, there are some people here in the middle of America who, you know, live in these small towns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they look at the social media or Internet and they feel like our lives are amazing and we have nothing to worry about. And, you know, getting messages from these people saying thank you for sharing. Now, you know, we know that it's not just me. It's not just us. Everybody goes through, you know, some sort of hurdle to, you know, struggle every day to get to where they are. So it it was very important to me for people to understand. Mm -hmm. It is not just always fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you learn about yourself that you didn't know before writing the book? Um, I started giving myself a little more credit than I did before. Hmm. Um, I always thought, and that was another reason that I never thought about writing a book or talking about my story, because I always thought everybody has a story. You know, I'm not that special. You know, people go through things way worse than what I went through. And some people don't go through things that I went through, you know. For some people, life is easier. For some people, it's a lot harder than mine. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't give myself enough credit that I got through a lot of things in a very young age. 
and <laughs> I didn't, you know, become a crazy person as far as I know. <laughs> well, that's yet to be known. <laughs> yeah, nobody's just told me I'm crazy yet. But, <laughs> you know, to go through so much as a young girl alone by yourself. And, um, as, and when I say this, you know, when people read the book, they understand it wasn't one thing, it wasn't two things. There was so much that we had, I had to deal with. Um, I, I was going to say we just because I was thinking about us, you know, Iranians that grew up um, under this regime, like all mm -hmm. the things that they put us through. And then I personally, you know, the things that I had to deal with in my own family and in my own personal life, my own choices and, you know, um, my, my past relationship, which is one of the reasons that I stay behind my whole family left and I decided I'm going to stay and, you know, to just, uh, so for people who are listening to make sense, I got in a, uh, relationship that became extremely abusive and you know um i was uh kept a hostage by my um ex's family him and his family and um this went on for about over a year about two years and i was um physically abused um you know obviously mentally and emotionally as well and I didn't talk about it to anyone because I was ashamed. There was a shame and a guilt that came with, it wasn't an arranged marriage. Everybody keeps asking me, oh, did they force you? No. Um, because of the way things are in Iran, dating is illegal. So when you fall in love with someone, you want to be freely see that person and you will get arrested. I was 13 years old when the Marabi police arrested me. And I wasn't dating at that time. I was just a kid and I was just saying hi to a neighborhood boy. And I felt a gun in the back of my head and I was handcuffed and thrown in a van and taken to jail. So as a 13-year-old, that makes you, uh, that traumatizes you. So I didn't, I was, you know, we had enough problems in country that, you know, every day we had to deal with with this government. And I didn't want dating to be one of them. So we rushed into getting married, um, even though there were red flags. And it was against my family's wishes, but I did it. And that's why I stayed behind because a lot of people, they're like, wait, you're the youngest. Why Why did your family left you? Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, 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 they didn't leave me. <laughs> but um, I, I refused to speak about what was going on to me um, for a very long time, again, because of the guilt and the shame that came with it. Uh -huh. Um. So I, I went through a lot, and writing this book, I never went to therapy. Uh, I never seek, you know, um, therapy for, you know, what I endured. But writing the book was very therapeutic, and what I've learned is I'm way stronger than I gave myself credit for. Uh -huh. Um. You know, it's been 25 years, and once you sit down and you revisit all these events, everything you've gone. Through and you have to write it down and put it on a paper so you keep thinking back oh my gosh and then it starts everything starts coming back to you and then you're like you realize how much you've gone through and dealt with and still managed to be a normal person 
and be a member, you know, of society that contributes to the society and is not like, you know, being staying a victim and saying, oh, well, these things happened to me, didn't happen to a lot of people. So I have a right to be angry, to be crazy, to be this way or to be that way. Um, so I had to give myself a lot of credit just because a lot of people around me who re- read the book gave me that validation. They're like, mm. do you understand how strong you are? Do you understand the things you've gone through and you're just, you know, living a normal life and you don't really like bring it up as an excuse. Um, so I had to, you know, listen to people around me and accept uh, what they were telling me mm. and understand that, you know what, they're right. I'm, you know, I'm, I need to give myself a little more credit as far as I, I am a strong woman. Mm-hmm. And yes, I did go, go through all this, but I'm better for it. And um, I survived. You are a survivor. It's amazing. From Istanbul, where did you land in the U.S.? Well, um, from Istanbul... Because United States wasn't giving me a visa to come and be with my family, even though, you know, they knew I couldn't go back home. Um, I somehow got myself to Amsterdam. Hmm. I was supposed to go to Panama from Amsterdam. Jesus and I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I had a connecting flight. And I, we, as a family, decided that I'm going to stay in Amsterdam. So I stayed in Amsterdam. Um uh, transit area you know where you can't if because i didn't have a visa to go into the city Hmm. i had to stay in the transit area i stayed in that transit area where passengers uh switch planes uh for people who've been to the amsterdam airport they know it's a huge airport and they have a hotel in there so i got a room and i stayed there for three nights Hmm. and mm, my brother-in-law my American brother-in-law, who I've never met before then, came to Amsterdam. And I'm not going to talk about a lot of details, but like how it happened. But from there, I went to um, Mexico City, Tijuana, and and then I walked the border illegally. You walked from Mexico to? I walked from the border of Tijuana to San Diego. So there is a border that people can walk. Um, So I crossed the border illegally. I completely changed my appearance. By yourself? No. As I said, my brother-in-law came to Amsterdam. Okay. He was with you. So from Amsterdam. Yeah. So from Istanbul to Amsterdam, I was alone. I stayed there for a few days. Then he met me there. And from there, we went to Mexico together. And uh, from Mexico, we crossed the border together. Um, there was no other way. So it was either go back home and be killed or risk it. Hmm. And, um, I didn't want to put my family through that. So I actually suggested that I go back. I'm like, I'm just going to go back and I will deal with whatever that comes my way. You're crazy. Whether it's, (laughs) you know, we tried, it was six months of me just staying in Istanbul and Istanbul wasn't, and we're talking about 1997. Mm-hmm. Istanbul wasn't a very safe place for a young girl alone. Um, so for me, it was just like, 
I'm tired. I I don't know how much more fight I have in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kidnapped. I was chased. $7,000 of my money that was supposed to um, go to my uh, travels got stolen. Jeez. So much happened. Yeah, so much happened. And um, it was very unsafe. So after so long, I was just ready to face whatever was waiting for me in Iran. And I'm like, I'm going to go back. And my sister, God bless her, she's a fighter. I mean, people think I'm a fighter. She, she's a lioness. She was not having it. Mm. So her and her newly, she was newly wed. She just got married to this American guy. And he took it on himself to just come to Amsterdam, get me and help me somehow to get here. And it was a huge risk for him as well. Mm-hmm. If we got caught, I would be sent back. I would be deported. Um, and we knew the risk. Um, and he would be in a lot of trouble. You know, mm-hmm. as an American, he, you know, I'm like, I didn't want to put them through that, but they were not having it any other way. So we just decided, okay, we're going to risk it. So we, I, I, I'm either going to be there within, I don't know, two, three days, or I'm going to be sent back and, or I'm going to be sitting in a jail somewhere in Mexico or somewhere, you know, uh, waiting my fate. That's so. crazy. From z- negative zero, you became a mm-hmm. s- celebrity stylist. How <laughs> did you pull that off? Not that quick. <laughs> um, it took a while, to be honest. I always was a creative child. I always loved film and cinema and theater. Um, so I was always very interested in that field of work. There, no, As I said, there are not a lot of opportunities back home um, to follow your dreams you know there are no dreams really like you can't have dreams in that country so mm-hmm. you are told what to be um so when i came here first you know it was a cultural shock so it took me a long time to find my place and my footing in america america is so different from anywhere else in the world you know mm-hmm. um there's some familiarity in europe uh, to my culture, you know, the mom and pop shops, the small alleyways, the, you know, there, there's, the culture is a little more similar. Um, but the States are just, it's, it's an own animal. It's so different. And it's so far away from everywhere else in the world that when you get here, you're like, whoa, it's very overwhelming. So it took me a while to kind of find my place here. and. Once I did, um, I just had to decide, okay, what it is that I want to do with my life. Once I figured out in the States, there are a lot of opportunities. You can take advantage of a lot of things and Mm -hmm. you name it, what do you want to be? You can be. I had a late start just because, as I said, I was 23 years old when I got here. Mm. So by the time that I uh, was comfortable in, I knew how to speak English, but not as well um by the time i was comfortable enough to you know speak the language by the time i was comfortable enough to you know find my place in the states and uh, be familiar with the way of life here um, i decided that i wanted to pursue you know my interest in you know a creative industry I went to school, I went to college, I put myself through college at the age of 28. um, And I went to a fashion school, and I studied fashion. 
Um, somehow it just, you know, styling was something I, I thought I wanted to do movies. I thought I wanted to do wardrobe for movies, which I did after I graduated for hmm. a few movies, but, um, you know, the long hours and, you know, the grueling schedule that comes with being in the film industry. I just didn't want to do that. Uh, and somehow I fell into styling and that was something that I was good at. And I knew like, you know, I, I know what I'm doing and I enjoy that. So little by little, just working with just normal everyday people. Then I got asked to do photo shoots. And after that, I met some celebrities and they asked me to dress them. And um, again, it wasn't an overnight success. I had to work really hard to find my way and, you know, get to where I am. Mm-hmm. You said that you don't give credit to yourself as much, but can you remember the moment that made you believe that you can succeed in the fashion world? Um, I feel like maybe after having my fifth client, you know, then I was like, okay, I'm doing something right because, <laughs> you know, I have people coming back and I have more people wanting to work with me. So once I started seeing a repeat, you know, clientele and uh, word of mouth that, oh, I've heard, you know, I, I saw the way my friend was dressing and I loved it and I want to work with you. You know, I think after like the maybe fifth, sixth person, I was like, okay, I think, this will be my, and I didn't actually quit my day job. You know, <laughs> I just, I was working, doing real estate on the side hmm. because as I said, it's a, you know, entertainment business and fashion business is not something that you can make it really quickly and easily. Mm-hmm. Some people do because you have connection, but I had no connection. I had to start everything from zero. Negative I had no zero. connection. Negative zero because I was also very new here in this country. Mm. I didn't know like there are so many ways to go about this. I had no idea. So I thought hard work, hard work, hard work, just do a good job. Mm-hmm. And I did it. But it took years for me to get to having my first celebrity client and mm. getting invited to the events that the celebrity stylists get invited to and be counted as one of, you know, the people in the industry. Um, it took many, many, many years. I've been in this business for 15 years. But when I look back at the beginning days, I would do it for free. I would take clients for free, to that's, be honest. That's because, funny. Yeah, I had to. I had to just start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, you know, I feel like when you put your heart and soul into something that you are really passionate about and you really love, it works out, you know, it just, if I knew what I know now, it would have happened a lot quicker, but I did it the hard way. So mm-hmm. uh, I have no regrets. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're dressing up celebrities, mm-hmm. where are the clothes from? Are like, do you buy them? Do they buy them? How does it work? So there are two different kind of clients that I work with. Um, there are regular people, uh, entrepreneurs, doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, tech people. There are celebrities. So 
if I'm working with a non-celebrity, somebody who is just a normal person, mm. um, I usually shop for them. So I get to know my clients, see what their style is, what their needs are. And after all these years that I've been in this industry, I have relationship with almost every single store and boutique. So what I do, I go to these stores and based on what my clients want and need, uh, I pull everything I need. So I don't pay for anything. I say, I need this, 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 this in this size. So they give it to me. For free? And I take, well, not for free, but they let me take it. It's borrowing. Oh, so okay. The, the lingo in my industry is pooling. So we pool these things from the stores. I take it to my clients. We do a fitting. And what they want and they like, they keep. What is like what they don't want, I take back to the store. And then I pay for what they kept. Mm. And then when they have, you know, a special occasion or they're traveling or, you know, they need me to put outfits together for them. I go over and I put outfits together. I either take pictures of each outfit and, you know, give it to them. So they have a reference. Mm. Um, or I just like put everything, accessories, shoes, you know, the, the look, everything together and dress them for whatever events they're going to. Hmm. That's how it's done for everyday people. For celebrities, everything is given to them. <laughs> yeah, so they don't have to buy anything. No So, way. yes, once you're a celebrity, everything is given to you. Um, so for my celebrity clients, I reach out to uh, what, we are, what we call is the PR department of hmm. a designer a house. So let's say um, Christian Dior. So they have a department that's their public relation department and they only work with, you know, celebrities. So I reach out to that person and I say, Hey, I have so-and-so who's going to the Oscars, going to the Emmys, going to the Golden Globe or has a movie coming out. You know, he's doing press for the movie and I need clothing. And they're like, come on in. And I go and I pick whatever I want and I dress my clients and they go on the red carpet. And sometimes they get this stuff gifted to them. They can keep it. Mm. Sometimes I have to give it back. They just wear it one time and then you give it back. Um, and then there's the photo shoot part of it. If you have a photo shoot for a publication, you go to places, they call it showrooms. These showrooms have different brands, clothing, shoes, accessories, whatever you want. Mm. And uh, again, you borrow those pieces, you take it to the sets, you do the photo shoot, and then you take it back. Mm. Have and you they get credit in the magazine. Uh, yeah, because they'll say like, oh, he's wearing, I don't know, Christian Dior or whatever. Exactly, it's printed, exactly. Speaking of that, have you ever had an experience that a designer, you know, maybe like a mom and pop boutique goes up to you and say, hey, Nas, guess what? We got shirts here. Uh, can you please make your celebrity um, clients wear them? All the time. <laughs> All the time. The amount of people that reach out to me to put like their stuff on my clients is incredible. Hmm. Like every day I get an email or I get a text or I get, you know, somehow I get contacted by different designers or, you know, old and new. You know, you get... You get people from Valentino begging you to put their stuff on your client 
for the Emmys or for, you know, Grammys or mm. whatever award show that is. Yeah, because that's advertisement for us, mm-hmm. you know, to say so-and-so wore our stuff. Um, so, yeah, I always nonstop get, you know, and, you know, some of them are legit. I've, I've dressed some of my bigger clients and uh, some brands that were not known at all. But when something is well-made and looks good, you know, you can't argue with that. It doesn't matter that it's not, you know, a Tom Ford. It doesn't matter that it's not a Saint Laurent. It mm. doesn't matter. Mm. You know, it is, if it's well-made and if it looks nice, um, I would love to give this new designers a chance to shine because I remember like when you're new, nobody wants to give you a chance. Nobody wants to, you know, give you an opportunity. And I've been there myself. I don't have a product, but as as myself, you know, offering my services, um, it's like I have to get my start somewhere. So if nobody's going to give me a chance, then how am I going to get there? And I feel for some of these designers who work so hard and, you know, they have great products. So if it's something that I feel like it actually is going to look good on my client, I don't care if nobody knows you, I'm going to put you on map. And I've done that actually with at least like three different brands that nobody mm. knew who they are. And my clients wore it and they were tagged and they, they were, their pictures were published. And once these media outlets pick up your picture, they ask you, they always contact the publicist or the stylist is like, give us the credits, what is he wearing? And these are all published. So it's putting those, you know, smaller designers on the map. That's mm. how they get to, you know, continue to do what they do. So how much butter of wines do you have in your house? Oh, God. <laughs> do you want me to turn the camera on no, and show okay. you my bar? <laughs> it's crazy, yeah, because I'm not a big drinker, but like every uh, every time the award season is over and you've actually used a designer, they would like to like send you something. And most of them just send alcohol, like the most expensive champagnes and like tequila. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not a drinker. Can I have something else? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a fun job. It's, you know, something that um, is actually a lot of people ask me like, oh, is it fun? It is fun. It's a lot of fun. But don't forget what you see is not reality. There's mm. a lot of hard work that goes <laughs> to this. Like when I just talking about, oh yeah, I go to the store and I pull this stuff. It's a lot of carrying all these like heavy garment bags <laughs> from the store to your car, from your car to the studio and like lining them up, hanging them nice, doing the fitting, packing them all up. It's a lot of work. Mm. And also when you're new, not everybody trusts you. Not everybody wants to give you, you know, the opportunity to, you know, loan you their stuff. So you mm-hmm. have to really prove yourself. And there is a lot of hard work. If anything goes wrong, it's your fault. You know, if <laughs> somebody decides to call your client, ooh, what was that they were wearing? Like, put them on the worst stress list. You know, everybody's going to look at you and be like, mm, you're a bad stylist. It was your <laughs> fault. You know, but then on the other side, you know, you get your stylist on a best dress list and you get the credit for that as well. But I have a lot of young kids reaching out to me and they want to be a stylist. And I have to be honest with them. Like, first of all, there's not a lot of money in it, you know, especially at the beginning. Don't mm. think you're going to be like a celebrity stylist and they're just going to throw money at you. It is not 
that's not how it works. A lot of celebrities actually don't pay for stylists. It's the studios that pay. Hmm. So if you have a film that comes out, whatever that you know the studio is, they're the ones who are paying you to dress the client for you know the appearances, whether it's an interview or if they're going to Oscar for the film. If it's if they're going to the Emmys for the show, it's for example ABC, NBC. They are paying you, and they don't pay much. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't pay much. Mm-hmm. So don't get into this industry for the money because you have to work for a very, very, very long time to get to a point that you live comfortably just doing this. Mm-hmm. Living in LA, how do you stay grounded and humble? Family. Mm. Family and remembering where I came from, which comes back to family because they always remind you, <laughs> <laughs> you are still the youngest, get up and get me a glass of water. <laughs> when you start feeling good, I'm the star over here and they're like, no, 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 no. no. Go get yeah. some glass of water. You know what? Um, there is nothing like family to build you up and to also bring you down to earth. <laughs> you know, they're your biggest supporters but when you really need to be reminded that you're just a person you're not you know solving world hunger problem here (laughs) you know your family is there to do both for you so yeah you know honestly I just as I said because I'm a lot older now and I started when I was older you know I wasn't 22, like a lot of stylists or a lot of people who get in the industry, they're very young. And I worked so hard to get to where I am. So I'm always reminded to be kind to those who are just starting. If I can give them an opportunity, I definitely will. And just treat everybody with respect. And again, honestly, there is so much going on in the world that you have to keep yourself informed of people's struggles in other parts of the world. You know, don't live in a bubble. And that kind of gives you, um, makes you a little more grounded and humble that I'm not doing anything special here. So what? You're addressing someone. You know, you're not really like doing anything that's significant. So calm down. And just look around you. It doesn't matter who you're hanging out with, who you're working with, where you live. You know, don't lose sight of who you are and where you come from. Hmm. That's very important. (laughs) Wise word from my wise woman. Again, Naz, (laughs) thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good evening. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you again, Naz, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.